Begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. Stephen Covey uh, wrote a runaway bestseller. I'll bet most of you have actually read it called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the second habit was to begin with the end in mind. Now, he'd taken that from other wise men over the years and he put that together. And the point of it is that you have to, you have to know where you're going so that you might know how to get there. If you go to the website, you'll see he has a, a pretty hallmark type video and he says, imagine yourself on your 80th birthday and has cuts from various types of people having their 80th birthday with friends and family gathered around, praising them, being grateful for them, thanking them. He says, can you picture that? Okay, now start making all of your decisions to be at that event. In his book, he says, imagine your funeral and people will come and give eulogies and they talk about you. What do you want them to say? What do you want to be known for? What do you want to be praised for? Can you visualize that? Perfect. Now, start making every decision in light of that end. Begin with the end in mind. If you look at the history of saints, Old Testament, New Testament, the church, you'll find that they all began with the end in mind, and the end was that. They all envisioned the promise of God of a great banquet, a table, a communion, a celebration. And when you can envision that, if you begin with that end in mind, it will change the way you view all of life. It will change the way you choose in all of life. Start with the end in mind. Some people, uh, many people believe that David, uh, King David was in the twilight of his years when he wrote Psalm 23, that he had become king, been chased out, been returned to Jerusalem, and he was up in his palace, maybe looking over a wall and seeing, which is still there to this day, the, the valleys and the hills where shepherds tending their sheep, and he probably found himself drifting off and remembering very sentimentally that he used to be a shepherd for his dad's flock. And how what it makes to be a good shepherd is to care and love, to protect them and to serve them. And then it occurred to him, wait a minute, I'm a sheep and the Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd is how Psalm 23 begins. It's a very affectionate psalm. And the first four verses are dedicated to the view that, that you are safe if Yahweh, you are always safe if Yahweh is your shepherd because he is strong he is powerful, and he is always present. That's what it means to be a good shepherd. And so you can see the, four, the first four verses here. It says, Yahweh is my shepherd. I, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his own namesake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You can see in this psalm, there is a progression of how he's speaking of the shepherd. In the first few verses, he's talking to us about his shepherd. He's bragging that the Lord, Yahweh, is his shepherd. And then he forgets that we're even in the room and says that when I'm afraid, I realize that I don't need to be because you are with me. 
And so the shepherd imagery has served its purpose up to this point. And so the last two sentences, verses 5 and 6, he's going to go deeper still into intimacy and significance as he talks about Yahweh taking on an entirely different role here in verses 5 and 6. It says, you, Yahweh, Yahweh, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. It is one thing to survive death. It is another thing to make death a triumph. And every word in these two sentences is to point you to this truth, that this banquet, it is a victory banquet. This is a celebration of conquest. Death is the gift that God gave the damned. Death is the gift that God gave the damned. Soon after the great rebellion in the, in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, there was a reckoning and then there were consequences. But being expelled from the Garden of Eden was not so much uh, an act of discipline as it was an act of protection. God saw that Adam and Eve had now been cursed, and they could eat from the tree of life and be cursed forever. And so in Genesis chapter 3, it says, And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life, and he eats from that, he would live in that condition forever. And so, therefore, Yahweh sent out from, from the Garden of Eden, sent them, I'm sorry, sent them out from the Garden of Eden and sent them out the east of the garden and then placed a cherubim on that station with a flaming sword as to guard them from the tree of life. And so death enters the human story, not just as an enemy, but also as a friend, because there's a banquet. There's something that comes after death. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This table is much greater than any kind of banquet in that in the culture in which this was written, they would know that when you dine in this context of a victory celebration, it is, it is a pledge of loyalty. It is the final sealing of a covenant. We would say... We're talking about the last communion service because communion, right, the Lord's table is a covenant ceremony. This is the blood of the new covenant. Keep doing this until I return. This is what the Lord's referring to, is this victory banquet table. The passage says, you prepare a table before me. That means that the Lord is putting this tablecloth on. That, that, that he has covered these chairs. He put out the plates and the china and the crystal and the candles. And, and he says, you prepare a table before me, not time, not before you get there, but be in front of. <laughs> and we, we sit, the, the, the image here is that only David could do this. Only a genius 
that had this poetic gift inspired by the Holy Spirit could paint this picture because our imaginations wouldn't allow it. We would never envision this. It, it's, it's, too, it's too far past what we could hope for. And David says, no, 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 listen. listen. He's going to do it before us. We're going to sit there while he gets all this ready. Who's he? Yahweh. Jesus. Not, not the shepherd. We're done. That's one through four. It's the king of all kings. And he's wearing an apron. He's preparing a table before us. When I was in uh, graduate school, I was, uh, because of the way it was set up, that, uh, near your graduation week, when you're going in your graduation week, they had a pretty nice banquet, as, as much as you could do for right, a private you know, seminary, that sort of thing. And so they dressed it up as much as they possibly could. And then they went way over the top. Because as the students sat at their tables, the president of the seminary prepared a table before us. Now, I had known of the president. He was rather notorious for his life, his journey. He had been all over the world. He had done some amazing things for the Lord. He had put his life at risk. He had put his family, in some respects, at risk because he just wanted to serve the Lord any way he could. He was a hero. And he's going around, and he's taking this napkin and handing it to me. Yeah. Could I get you some tea, Matt? What kind of dressing would you like? It was humiliating. Not for him. He was a humble man. It was, it was, I was twitching. I was fidgety. This is no president of a seminary. This is God Almighty. And he prepares a table before us. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Every word. It's a victory banquet. And the people that read this when it was written knew they're talking about after the conquest, after the defeat of the enemies, they would come and have a meal together with those that won. And you can't eat in peace unless there's been justice done. Unless there's vindication, you can't rest. And so that's, that's taken care of. And one of the cultural things that would happen sometimes is the men that they would conquer would have to sit sometimes chained to the table or sitting outside of the table so they could watch the victors enjoy the spoils because justice had come, finally. And it says that you do this in front of, the, in front of my enemies. Not only is he preparing the table, it says, and you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. I'm not a big King James guy, but boy, this passage, my cup runneth over. I've never wanted to say runneth in my life until I, right? My cup runneth over. You anoint my head with oil. Big picture, I want you to see that when a person's head is anointed with oil, there's two things happening, I think, in this passage. is One, it's just a, the sense of gratitude that you have arrived. In our culture, it would be you ring the doorbell, and I run to that door, and when I, I swing the door open, I hug you, and then I kiss you, and I, I say, you come inside. My house is your house. So there's a sense of festivities and, and excitement that you will dine with me, but also in this anoint your head with oil was a cultural thing as well because of the power of the fragrance of this oil. And when it comes to like our senses, nothing compares 
like our sense of smell, for establishing memories, for right, demanding a mood. And so he, he grabs us and shows great affection to us, and then he lathers our head with oil, and that fills the room. And you were, you were out there, right, in the earthy part. You kind of smelled like the outdoors, and now you smell sacred. You, you were there, and now you're here. You were temporal, and now you're eternal. The smell is, is filling the room, and it is the smell of life and truth and love. He anoints my head with oil. Who does this? God Most High, the One, the Word. That's who's doing all this. My cup overflows. My cup runneth over. An expression of, of extravagance, right? Of excessiveness, of bounty and abundance. Have you read the passage? There's one in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 3 where it says that he would give exceedingly abundantly beyond what you could ask or imagine. Anyone received exceedingly abundantly more you could ask or imagine? Anyone? I have. The point is that's the way God is. Haddon Robinson commenting on this uh, Ephesians passage. Listen to the way he describes the nature of God when it comes to generosity. With him, Yahweh, with him, the calf is always the fatted calf. The robe is always the best robe. The joy is unspeakable. The peace, it passes understanding. There is no grudging in God's goodness. He doesn't measure out his goodness like drops from a druggist filling some kind of prescription. It always comes in floods. If only we recognize the lavish abundance of his gifts, what a difference that would make in our lives. Every meal would be taken as a gift from his hands, and those meals would each be a sacrament. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Can you see it now? Surely goodness and love will follow me to the day, all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. I think in these two sentences, David wants us to remember this, to know this with great confidence, to live our lives with this, keeping this end in mind, that no matter what your life story is, it ends with this banquet. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if he's the king that rules you, if you've surrendered your soul to him, no matter how you've lived, this awaits you. We all have so many different life stories. There's too many to name or number. But if, if you finish life like Joseph and you live in a palace and have unparalleled power, it ends with a banquet. And all of it seems pretty shallow when you're standing here. It's, it's, it's trivial compared to being at that table. Some people, they live their whole life in a sense of torment and suffering and pain is their only companion. And then they have a banquet. And all is well, a victory feast. Some people, they live in isolation. Loneliness and fear are their only friends. And then a banquet, and then a banquet. And it's in a table, it's a communion, it's a communion together with people that know how to love and be loved. Keep the end in mind. Whatever the story, it ends the same. If you look in the book of Hebrews, there's a list of 
the heroes of the Older Testament and those in the New Testament time. And he, he starts by listing those that, that finished, they finished well. They finished alive. You know, they, they, they lived a full life. Let me put it this way. And then he changes the mood a little bit and says, no, no, not everyone lived out the fullness of their life. They were tortured and they died martyrs. And the reason they were able to do that is because they kept the end in mind. Let me just read you from that Hebrews chapter 11, but let me just kind of add this as a visual to help you understand what would motivate these great saints. It's always the same motive, the next life. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so they might obtain a better resurrection at the banquet. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, and yes, they were in chains and imprisoned, and then a communion table. And they were stoned, and they were sawn in two, and then there was a victory banquet. They were tempted, and they were put to death by the sword, and then there was a meal. And finally, and they went about in sheepskins and goatskins and being destitute and afflicted and ill-treated men whom this world is not worthy to enjoy, wandering in the deserts and the mountains and the caves and the holes in the ground, and then a welcome home feast. They always end this way. Keep this end in mind. The stories always end this way where Yahweh prepares a table before them. You look at, you picture the story, and I'll tell you how it ends. In the first century, when Hebrews was being written, uh, Rome was rotting from the inside out. Those in leadership knew it was long gone. And so to keep the people distracted and from revolting, they invented a thing called the carnival. Carney means flesh. It was a flesh festival. And they did whatever it could to keep people amused. And one of the things they did for amusement, mind you, is they would gather up the Christians with their families, put them in the center of a coliseum, tie them to various poles, and then release the lions on them that hadn't been fed in a week so that they might see them torn to pieces. They would cheer for this. They'd buy tickets for this. And what would it be like to be a Christian in those days, to be pulled out of your house? I'm picturing myself as the, the, you know, the father and the husband. You see your wife and your children on these poles, and everyone, the, the, the roar of the crowd, you can't even, you can't talk to them. Everybody's having so much fun with what's about to happen to you and those that you love. And then comes the roar of the lions. What does the father say? Slowly, so they can read his lips. Say it, kids. Come on, honey. Come on, you know the words. The Lord is my shepherd. Before you could get to the second sentence, the family banquet. We're all there together. And he was setting a table before us. And he anointed our heads with oil. And our enemies were around us. Hey, Dad, who's that? Chained to the table here. Oh, that's Nero. Because this is a victory dinner. In the old south... The slaves. Let's picture some old slave that was beaten without mercy for the last time. For the last time. 
because this time brought him into the presence of this banquet. And that smell, that putrid smell of the prison that he was living in, the the nasty, guttural disgust of violence is now greeted with, with freedom and peace and the enemies before them. And, and he'd be sitting at this table and he'd be thinking, all of those spiritual songs that I sang, all those songs, they were true. It was all true. We will enjoy a banquet someday. That's what the promise is. There are different kinds of banquets. They all end the same way, but there's different kinds. They kind of, they kind of show up in different ways, don't they? Like, just think of them as parties. There's, there's parties that take, you know, sometimes years to plan. There's parties that you're notified ahead of time. There's parties that are surprise parties. Like, why do, how did that happen? I don't, I'm not a big fan of surprise parties because I don't know how to emotionally respond to those. That's how these banquets are. That's, and if, you, if we could see life in the context of this table, it could quite possibly, no, it would absolutely change the way we mourn. When you look at this table and a surprise party happens to someone you love and they have a booster seat, you stop and you ask and you wrestle with God and you fight with him and you say, if he's all loving and all-powerful, how could there be a booster seat at this table? And in your anger, in your negotiating, in your refusal to accept it, if you could stop and just picture that child here, surely goodness and kindness will be with them all the days of their life. It's just a different way of looking at it, right? We, our family found out from an acquaintance, of our, an acquaintance of ours. Their son was driving back to the ranch, and it was very late at night, and he had a surprise party. It was too late at night, and he thought he'd made it home, and so he relaxed a little bit. And when he got to the gate to the ranch, he fell asleep, and he hit a tree. And then he woke up here. He woke up here. It's one thing to survive death. It's another thing to call it a triumph. Surely uh, he will live in the house of Yahweh forever. It doesn't change our sorrow, but it does help us understand this perspective, doesn't it? Some of you um, have married well. You have great marriages. And if you study the passage in Genesis, it says that it took, uh, the Lord took a, a rib from Adam to create Eve. Really, the word is side. And some of you understand what that means. He didn't take a rib. He took my side. I love this woman, this man so deeply. He or she owns most of my soul. And when they come and sit here, we lose ourselves because we've allowed ourselves to be defined as us, not me and them, but us. And you, and, and you, 
you forget simple things like how to eat. It's been six months and three weeks and four days and 10 hours, and I just can't find my way to be hungry. When my mother died, my, do- my, my father lost a lot of weight that he, didn't, he couldn't afford to lose. And so we sat down with him, and we said, Dad, you've, you have to eat. And he said, why? And so while your loved one might have moved on and you sit and you pray and you talk about how much you miss them and how much you love them and how much you've lost them, if you would ask them, they would say, yeah, my cup is full. Wait, that's not what the passage says. My cup overfills. And honey, I know you miss me, but I don't miss you. I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. From this point of view, everything changes. I'm not a big fan of surprise parties. I just don't know how to act. And when people are taken from us suddenly, It'll throw us off balance, but we must remember they're sitting here. If they love the Lord and they served him, if they've given their soul to them. There's other kinds of, of banquets. Some take too long to get here. I mean, can you imagine receiving, you know, a save the date where it said, uh, save the date for this big banquet coming uh, in a year or more, not sure, could drag on forever. And that's how it is with some of us that have loved ones that are getting older, right? Where you, 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 you go and you visit them, and sometimes you're in an extended care place, right? And, and some of them are not very nice, and they smell like death and, and waste. It's dreadful. And you go and you visit them, and they're not who they used to be, and you say, God... What have you not done in their lives that you couldn't take them right now? Just take them. Let them invite them to this party, please. And then it finally happens. And then you feel guilty about feeling that way and praying those prayers. But you know that that, that, that smell of death and waste and disease, and now it's the smell of life and vigor and strength because he has anointed their head with oil. When Melinda's dad had, was leaving, she was fortunate enough to be in the transition, and he uh, was, had lost his ability to speak and uh, was losing somewhat of his personality as well, and it came to that moment where he uh, was leaving, and, and Melinda and, his sister, and her sister saw it happen, and here's what, here's what they saw. They saw that he could see this table. He had had a vision. He was not looking at them. He was looking through them. In the room, he saw the shepherd. No, I'm sorry, the king in an apron. And he was reaching for that, and he was smiling, and they went full-blown Pentecostal on him. You go, Dad. There's nothing here for you. You go. Let go. Go get that hug. He will greet you and pour oil on your head. He will set a table for you in your very presence. And then he was gone. 
And then he was here. And then he said, oh, death, where's your victory now? In the presence of my enemies. Death is one of those enemies. You have to have a name card to come to this banquet. You have to have a reservation. You have to be one of his. He's the shepherd, and when he speaks, you're supposed to know his voice. And the only way that happens is if you change your view of who Jesus Christ is. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't a good example, just a good example. He was God. That's what he said. He said, I come to pay the cost for all of men's sins or just for your sins. The violence that he experienced in his death was your fault. That was the wrath of God's holiness taken out on someone else so that we might be invited to this table. And you'd have to change your view of him if it's anything shy of that. And if you did, then he'd write your name on the palm of his hand and you would have a banquet for you. The point of the passage is this. David would say, to begin with the end in mind, because when you sit here, oh, everything changes. Oh, everything changes. Our values change. What we consider important changes. Because when you sit here, you want to live your life in a way that reflects a value where you get to dine with the king. Paul uh, saw this table towards the end of his life, and he wrote in Romans that after he had been uh, beaten with rods several times, one time stoned and left for dead, drug out of a city, shipwrecked, been without food for days, his reputation had been ruined and misunderstood. And when he was penning Romans in chapter 8, he said, when I consider all of the sufferings that I've been through sitting in this chair, they are not comparable to the glory of this victory banquet. I wish I'd had done more. And he says, is it any wonder that all of creation eagerly awaits the day of the banquet? When you sit here, you'll let go of petty competition. Oh, actually, most of our, most everything is petty from here, right? And, and, and grudges and greed. Did you know then we try to collect as much gold as possible, and they use gold for asphalt. That's what they pave the roads in to get to this place. If we could see life from this chair, then we could, we could be obedient, and it wouldn't be a burden to us. We would live our lives with this end in mind. We'd live each day with the great expectation that we would be greeted at the door by Yahweh, Jesus, the King of all kings, and he would throw his arms around us and he would spill this perfume all over our heads and he would hold us and whisper, whoa, that was a great life. You well done. Well done, my son. Good job, my girl. Now come here. Sit down. I'm going to prepare before you a table. This is a victory dinner. You want to live that way? Believe that to be true.
and make every choice to that end. That's Psalm 23, verses 5 and 6. Let's pray. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I lack in no things. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of death itself, not to just, just survive it, but to make it a triumph, I will fear no evil. Yahweh's with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. Yahweh prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's Yahweh that anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. And surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in that house of Yahweh forever. Dear Yahweh God, would you brand in our minds this great banquet table that we could celebrate in your glory so that we might find ourselves without regret or remorse in our decisions that we become generous and sacrificial because there is no sacrifice too great in light of the comparison of being at that table with you and greeted by you. Lord, I'd ask that we would be the saints we were meant to be. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.